it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Shannon Green. New pressure on the president to deal with Putin after the Kremlin's fiercest domestic critic winds up dead. Make no mistake, Putin is responsible for Navalny's death. President Biden joining the chorus of world leaders placing the blame for Alexei Navalny's death squarely on Moscow. This all coming after a firestorm on Capitol Hill as the House Intelligence Chair sounds the alarm about a possible Russian nuclear weapon in space, forcing the White House to clarify. We are not talking about a weapon that can be used to attack human beings or cause physical destruction here on Earth. We'll talk with Democratic Senator Michael Bennett, who sits on the Senate Intelligence Committee, about the administration's latest foreign policy headaches. Then, the 24 campaign heads to South Carolina. It's so good to be home. And President Trump stays on offense. Nikki Haley, have you ever heard of her? You don't hear her name too much anymore. We'll discuss this week's big primary with Trump supporter and possible VP pick, Senator Tim Scott. And with Nikki Haley surrogate, New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu, about her path forward. Plus, you're confused. You think I'm on trial. These people are on trial for trying to steal an election in 2020. From the Georgia election interference probe to the massive verdict against President Trump in his New York civil fraud trial, we'll break down the legal proceedings piling up on the GOP frontrunner's plate. And I will not be seeking a third-party run. I will not be involved in a presidential run. Our Sunday panel weighs in on which candidate benefits the most from that news. All right now on Fox News Sunday. Hello from Fox News in Washington. We begin with starkly different visions for America's foreign policy from the two frontrunners in the 2024 presidential race. President Biden slamming Congress for being out on recess without passing wartime aid to Israel and Ukraine and denouncing, quote, the previous president for recent remarks saying he wouldn't come to the aid of any NATO country that wasn't up to date with payments to the alliance. Former President Trump calling Biden's foreign policy weak while suggesting any new aid for Ukraine should be approved as a loan and not direct cash payments. In a moment, we'll get reaction from both sides of the aisle. Democratic Colorado Senator Michael Bennett, who supports the president's reelection, and South Carolina Republican Senator Tim Scott, who is backing President Trump. But first, let's turn to Fox News correspondent Lucas Tomlinson, who is live on the ground in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. Hello, Lucas. Shandon, Ukrainian forces have retreated from a city in the east, giving Russia its biggest victory in months. President Biden blames Congress for the loss. I'm going to fight till we get, it, get them the ammunition they need. President Biden voices outrage over House Republicans refusing to vote on the Senate's $95 billion aid package for Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan. A bipartisan alternative has been introduced, which includes funding for the southern border. Days before the two-year anniversary of Russia launching its full-scale invasion of Ukraine, there's growing concern in Washington about Russia launching something else, a nuclear warhead into orbit. What we're discussing is a Russian anti-satellite weapon. It's something we have to address seriously. 
and on an immediate basis. At the Munich Security Conference, where in 2007 Russian President Vladimir Putin warned the West about his future intentions, Secretary of State Antony Blinken huddled with his Chinese and Indian counterparts. To warn them, Russia's new weapon threatens their satellites, GPS, and communication systems, too. Former President Donald Trump rattled NATO allies when he said the U.S. might not defend the alliance if Russia attacks. No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. You got to pay. You got to pay your bills. Biden defended the 75-year-old military alliance. NATO is critical to our survival. The idea that to let NATO begin to split is totally against the interests of the United States of America. Biden spoke to reporters here in Rehoboth Beach yesterday where he reiterated he blames Putin for the death of Alexei Navalny and said it cannot be tolerated. Shannon. Lucas Tomlinson in Rehoboth Beach. Lucas, thank you. Joining us now, Colorado Senator Michael Bennett. Uh, Senator, welcome to Fox News Sunday. Good to see you. Thank you, Shannon. It's great to be with you. All right, let's start here. President Biden had said there would be devastating consequences if Navalny died while he was in Russian custody. It appears that's happened. You sit on the Senate Intelligence Committee. What options do we have? Well, first of all, there's no doubt that Putin did this, and he did it during the uh, Munich Security Conference just to tell the world that he doesn't care what anybody thinks and that he can do anything that he wants to do. The most significant thing we could do right now to push back on this is to continue to fund Ukraine, to push back on the illegal invasion that Putin has led, the first uh, incursion into a free country in Europe since the World War II order, since the, since the new order after World War II was established. And that's what we should do. What do you think about this question now of President Biden pushing back, limiting exports of liquefied natural gas? Because a lot of folks say that's going to empower Putin, because those folks in Europe who are counting on exports from us that can't get it now will have to seek elsewhere, you know, arguing that it gives him an advantage at a time we should be putting him into a corner. I actually don't support uh, what President Biden is doing there. I think it's been very important uh, for American liquefied natural gas to replace uh, the natural gas that Russia was uh, sending to Europe. I think it's important for us to have the benefit of, of selling that natural gas versus other countries like Qatar uh, in, in this world. And so I believe one of the United States' massive strategic strengths uh, is our energy, our clean energy and our fossil fuels. And I think that's a short-sighted decision. You mentioned aid. Obviously, the Senate has passed a package that includes aid for Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan, other interests out there as well. Do you consider the Ukraine and Israeli threats equal? Are they, are they as urgent to you in both cases? Meaning, would you, if the House will not pass this package, vote for standalone pieces for Ukraine aid and say separately for Israeli aid? I don't think we should pass standalone packages. I think both are very urgent. The House has shown they can't pass the Israeli aid by itself. And in the Senate, we passed it uh, not just with Democratic votes, but with 22 Republican votes. We got 70 votes for this package, Shannon. You can't get 70 votes for anything in the United States Senate. That is a reflection of how urgent Republicans and Democrats in the Senate feel about this. I believe it's a reflection of the American people's sense of urgency when democracy is under attack and and the American people sense that 
they want America to lead. They don't believe in this isolationist rhetoric that Donald Trump is pursuing, which is, by the way, identical to the isolationist rhetoric that the America Firsters used before we went into World War II. And history has not shined you know, well on those people, and I don't think it will on the people that are looking for every excuse for America not to lead in this fight for democracy, this fight for freedom, this fight for, for, for the Western world, which is what we're engaged in. But if right the House now. will not, if the House will not do a package, if they sent back individual bills, would you be a no vote on a bill for Israel, for Ukraine? I, I think they shouldn't pass it individually. I, but if it comes over as individual, of course I'll vote to support it. Uh, this, these, these legislative machinations, these political games that the House is playing, like should we do $10 billion here or $10 billion there? You know, when we're talking about $60 billion in the face of having spent $4 trillion uh, on Afghanistan and Iraq, I mean, and, and here we have a case where there are not American troops, where we're able to rebuild our armed forces as a result of what we're doing, where we've been able to learn the Russian battlefield and the use of technology. I mean, there is so much that the United States has gained from this engagement, and the amount of money we have spent is a pittance compared to the amount of money that we've spent uh, in, these, in these other much less successful uh, efforts. And, uh, and I so look, I'll vote for it either way. But the point is, let's get it over there. They've just had their lost first defeat, the Ukrainians, since last May, uh, uh, partly as a result of the fact that they're outgunned 10 to 1 by the Russians. We can help solve that problem for them. And we should. They've done everything anybody could have asked them to do. And they are they're they're worthy of our support. So let's talk about the Israel part of this conversation. Um, you support a state, two-state solution, as does the Biden administration. Prime Minister Netanyahu again talking about this yesterday, again today before a cabinet meeting, saying there is no way that's going to happen without direct negotiations between the two and unlikely in any case. He thinks it's a reward for terrorists and says to have that on his border is essentially an existential threat 24-7. Um, do you disagree? And, and what do you say to those who now some over on the Senate side are proposing that there would be conditions? Would you vote for conditions on aid to Israel that required them to do something like a two state solution? Well, I, I completely disagree with what Prime Minister Netanyahu said. I'm not sure he would care to hear me say that, but I do completely disagree with it. I think he is animated by his own domestic political interests. He wants to stay in charge. And he's and that's why he's pursuing the policies that he's pursuing, I think. And it's uh, important for the United States to continue to stand as Democratic and Republican administrations had over generations for a two state solution, because that will be the only solution that will endure. There is no way for there to be a independent, democratic Israel, uh, Jewish only uh, state in, in, the, in the region without also there being a Palestinian state. That's not just what I believe. That's what Democratic and Republican presidents have always believed. And for good reason, because that is the only way there will be an enduring peace in that part of the Middle East. Okay, as so we stay in the Middle East, I want to bring up a couple of new polls we have this week. And we asked voters out there, do you think uh, President Biden or President Trump is better equipped to handle? Who do you trust to handle more this Israel-Hamas split, this conflict? Michigan voters give Trump 
an eight-point advantage. North Carolina voters give President Trump a 15-point advantage. And those results come on the heels of an NBC News poll that says this. Three-quarters of voters, including half of Democrats, say they have concerns about President Biden's mental and physical health. And those numbers are before the Her report came out. So what do you say to a vast majority of Americans who worry that President Biden is not up to handling these issues? Well, what I say on, the, on, on that is that the president is President Biden's going to have to go out and litigate this election. Obviously, his age is going to be an issue in the election, but I think he's going to be able to run not just on the domestic accomplishments that he's had and an economy that's getting better uh, every every day, but also uh, the foreign policy coalition that he's put together uh, in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Obviously, you know, the situation in the Middle East is a grave one at the moment. And the American people, I think, are reacting quite understandably to the chaos that's there. The question I would ask if I were and I will ask when I'm voting uh, in November is which of these presidents is more likely to bring more chaos, which is more likely to be able to work with allies around the world uh, to bring bring uh, a more enduring, if not peace, um, uh, uh, a path forward uh, in the Middle East. That's eluded um, all of us for the last 70 years, and we need to do better than we've done. People in Palestine deserve to live uh, uh, a decent life. People in Israel deserve to live a decent life, and I hope America can be a stalwart ally as we move into a world with that two-state solution. I'll tell you this Senate. also, because I was there throughout this entire mm -hmm. time, Iran became more dangerous during Donald Trump's presidency. They came closer to a nuclear weapon during Donald Trump's presidency than they ever did during Barack Obama's presidency. And that is a huge cost to President Trump's approach well, to these matters in the Middle East. Senator, I'm not yeah. sure that everybody who's listening... Yeah, well, the Fox this morning will agree with me, but it is true. I'm, I'm guessing uh, the next guest will not, and we'll take that up with him. Senator Bennett, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me. All right, joining me now, South Carolina Republican Senator Tim Scott. All right, Senator, welcome back. You heard uh, what your colleague there said, that things <laughs> got more dangerous under President Trump, who you have endorsed. Yeah, hogwash. What we need to know without any question is under uh, President Obama, the JCPOA or the nuclear deal went into place with, it, with, with Iran. Uh, it was a disaster. What did we see within the JCPOA? We saw without question uh, testing of mid-range uh, missiles. What we need to know that was under President Trump, we were just better off. World peace. Think about this. Before President Trump, incursion in Ukraine. After President Trump, a war in Ukraine. The one thing that is completely clear is when President Trump was in office, world peace was a not only an objective, but we were experiencing it. Under President Biden, botched withdrawal from Afghanistan, war in Ukraine. We have conflict in the Middle East, instability in the Indo-Pacific, and our southern border might be, in my opinion, the greatest national security risk we have today. We've lost 70,000 lives because of fentanyl coming through our ports of entry and across our southern border. President Biden refuses to close our southern border, and it is the number one issue, according to the American people. That's why he's underwater 
according to all the polls against President Trump. It's just called common sense. Let's secure our southern border. Well, Senator, let's talk about that. Uh, Let's talk about that because you and your fellow South Carolina governor, uh, Senator Lindsey Graham, were just down there at the border. Um, You were talking about President Biden, what he needs to do. Uh, But Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says this. He he said it's quote nice that you took a field trip, but adds this: actions speak louder than words. Senators Graham and Scott voted to keep the status quo and against the necessary resources to secure the border. If the issue is so urgent, why vote against a package that arguably did something about the flow of people coming illegally across the border? Well, let me just say this to every single person watching this show. I hope that the United States Senate and, frankly, Congress will have a field hearing in Eagle Pass, Texas, at the southern border. And you will understand why I voted against the border deal that lacked two really important points. The one thing that I heard from the Border Patrol agents themselves was this. If you had a physical impediment, a border wall, it would drop the crossing significantly. And number two, if it had the remain in Mexico policy, within two weeks, some of the Border Patrol leaders said we could see a 90 percent drop in just two weeks in the Eagle Pass area of our southern border without doing those two things and Allowing, according to the the bill, allowing up to 2 million illegal immigrants in the next 12 months or so. That's not a bill anyone should sign, and it's certainly not a bill that I can support. 5,000 a day, Shannon, is what they allow in that bill. 5,000 a day, and it codifies catch and release. To be clear, though, it would be once they hit that rolling average of 5,000 a day, they say, the proponents of the bill, that it would shut the border completely, not continue to allow 5,000 a day, but that would be the marker for stopping it. It's a no for you for now, um, clearly. I want to talk about your support for President Trump, though, because a lot of speculation. You may be on the short list for VP, uh, that you potentially being vetted for that. So let's talk about some of his policies. We're heading into the South Carolina um, primary, critical to your home state. Former Governor Nikki Haley, um, who appointed you to the Senate, running far behind President Trump, but taking a lot of shots at him. She says... um, She's very concerned about where he is on foreign policy, these comments about NATO and letting people within NATO be attacked if they haven't paid their dues. Um, And she says she's very concerned about the relationship between President Trump and Vladimir Putin. Here's her take. He's going to side with a thug who kills his political opponents. He's going to side with a dictator who arrests our American journalists and holds them hostage. He's going to side with a dictator who has not hidden his hatred for America. Why would President Trump even give the appearance that he would support any of those things? It's ridiculous. Uh, I'm not sure what Nikki's doing right now. I think she's desperate without question. She's going to lose her home state in double digits. There's not a state coming, coming up that she can win. Even in New Hampshire, she lost women voters to Donald Trump. She lost millennials to Donald Trump. She lost seniors to Donald Trump. Here's what I can tell you about Donald Trump and foreign policy. Without any question, the resources necessary to protect this world, a part of, as according to the NATO alliance, those resources went up under Donald Trump because of his, his language. Number two, we had a safer world. Putin stayed out of Ukraine. Hamas stayed out of Israel. In the Pacific, China was not targeting Taiwan. 
Our southern border, we had on average, is last year in office, about a thousand folks crossing our border illegally. Today, the average is closer to 6,000. The one thing we know for sure, with President Donald Trump as our president, we are certainly better off. And that's not even talking about the economy, which is the number two issue. Low unemployment, low inflation. Uh, we're talking demographically for Hispanics, for African-Americans, for Asians, for women a 70-year low. When you look at law and order, there wasn't the challenges that we're seeing in the poorest communities around the country. We had the kind of law and order where people could walk the streets in their neighborhoods. All that can be back with four more years of Donald Trump. Uh, before you go, though, there's a lot of tension, obviously, between yes, President Trump and, and Governor Haley. That makes sense as they're headed to the showdown in South Carolina. But he says things like yes. she may not be uh, eligible to run, suggesting she wasn't born in the U.S., which she was. He calls her bird brain. He made comments about her husband being on military deployment as if he was trying to get away from her. Wall Street Journal says this. He seems to have forgotten, if he ever cared, that he will need some of her admirers to vote for him in November, talking about centrist Republicans, independents, even Democrats who voted for her. Is President Trump writing them off? Where does he think her supporters will go if he continues to attack her like that? Well, there, there's no doubt that <clears throat> the race has gotten kind of challenging without any question. Listen, the rhetoric coming out of the Haley camp, uh, talking about people's age. Uh, we, we see the Haley camp in the, in the family uh, referring to me as Judas Iscariot. We're hearing a lot of chatter out of the Haley camp, not only just matching the rhetoric from the Trump side, but actually going further. Why? Because they're desperate. Here's what I can guarantee you in just six days. President Trump will win my home state of South Carolina. We will see a total sweep in this state. We'll go to Super Tuesday and he'll run the, the tape there as well. Then we'll turn our attention to where it should be now. On Joe Biden. Joe Biden is underwater in all the battleground states, which means if the momentum continues, we'll have four more years of Donald Trump. And that means we'll have law and order, not chaos in the streets. We'll have the strongest economy with low inflation. We haven't seen that in nearly four years. And we'll have a completely secured southern border. We will unite around Donald Trump as Republicans as in and independence will do the same thing. It's already re, being reinforced when I go to church, when I go to the gym and in the polls across the country. We want four more years well, of stability, four more years of security and four more years of world peace. Donald will, Trump. It'll be ultimately up to the voters uh, to see where they go. But yes, we uh, will be watching in South Carolina and well beyond. Senator Scott, thank you for your time. Yes, ma'am. Just days until the highly anticipated primary there in South Carolina. Nikki Haley facing a steep uphill climb to try to close the gap. We'll bring in one of her fiercest advocates, New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu, on why she is refusing to back down. He's next. Fox News Sunday is brought to you by Pacific Life. Over 150 years of strength and stability. Imagine your future with confidence. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. 
South Carolina voters will head to the polls Saturday for the state's 2024 GOP primary. Nikki Haley traveling across her home state, taking aim at President Trump over foreign policy and his legal woes. But polls show she's got a lot of ground to make up if she's going to catch him. Fox News correspondent Alexandria Hoff joins us live from Columbia, South Carolina on that. Hey, Alex. Good morning, Shannon. Yeah, the former governor's message has been that South Carolina is not her final battle. She points out that in the 10 days after the primary, there will be 20 states to cast ballots. And she says those voters deserve to have a say, too. It's the early primary state she knows best. It's a great day in South Carolina. But home is no safe haven for former Governor Nikki Haley, who will spend the next week crisscrossing South Carolina, hoping to come out as at least competitive in Saturday's Republican primary. Her focus as of late has been on foreign policy, calling out GOP frontrunner Donald Trump's recent statement that Russia should, quote, do whatever the hell they want to NATO members who don't spend enough on defense. Haley also hit on Trump's lack of comment regarding the death of Putin foe Alexei Navalny. So if you're going to encourage Putin to invade our allies because they're not pulling their weight, then you need to tell us what does that mean that you think about what Putin did to Navalny? Do you think he's responsible? He is responsible. This is what Putin does. He kills his political opponents. At a rally in Michigan last night, former President Trump made no mention of Navalny and only briefly mentioned South Carolina. Get out and vote. You watch, uh, watch South Carolina, how we're doing there. We're doing great. According to tracking firm Ad Impact, Trump has maintained his commanding lead in the state despite receiving roughly $10 million less than Haley in political ad support. Now, Trump has been critical of voting regulation here in South Carolina. In this primary, registered Democrats can vote in the Republican primary so long as they did not cast a ballot in the Democratic primary earlier this month. Shannon. Alexandria Hoff in South Carolina. Alex, thank you. Joining me now, New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu. Good to have you with us, Governor. You bet. Good to see you. Okay, so let's talk reality here. The latest Monmouth Washington Post poll there in South Carolina among Republican primary voters has President Trump at 58 percent, Governor Haley at 32 percent. More recent polling shows an even wider gap. Why is she still in? Uh, look, because uh, two states, New Hampshire and Iowa, as great as we are as being a filter, uh, don't dictate the Republican nominee for the entire country. You got to let this stuff play out. You got to give folks a choice. And so, again, these early states have always just been kind of filters to try to narrow it down to a one-on-one -on -one race. We've gotten that. That's great. Nikki Haley's gonna is raising a ton of money. She has resources. She's going to play in all of the uh, Super Tuesday states, and I think she's going to do very well there. I think she's going to do well in her home state of South Carolina. So there's a lot to play here. Remember, Nikki. Haley Haley had about 4% of the vote about six weeks before, uh, before New Hampshire. And in that time frame, she wiped out every other candidate and got within about 10 points of them, showing that there's a real alternative here. There's a choice. And this election is not just about the, New the, the primary. It's about November, right? Nikki trounces Biden in November. For, with Trump, it's going to be a nail-biter, just like it was in 22 when we lost with his candidates and when, he lost, when we lost in 20. So this is about winning, right? You can't govern if you don't win. You can't pass these policies. She trounces Biden. And uh, the, the fear is that if, if Trump is the nominee, ultimately Biden wins and the next president of the United States is actually Kamala Harris. That's a reality uh, of the domino effect that Trump would have in America. But it seems like an argument that 
primary voters, at least thus far, are not buying. Um, there is also this issue of the, all the polling has shown that the governor's unfavorability has ticked up. Her favorability has ticked down. The last couple of months, one analyst puts it this way. We see a significant dip in favorability and rise in unfavorability that seems to correspond with her increasing attacks on Trump. This would seem to indicate that in South Carolina, as apparently in the nation as a whole, that the Republican Party is very much Trump's party. Is there room for Nikki Haley in a party that most analysts think now belongs to Donald Trump? Oh, well, absolutely. So let's look at South Carolina. They traditionally have a very low voter turnout. So a lot of the opportunity that Nikki has is talking to those Republican voters, talking even to some of those independent voters that, that are more conservative, but typically stay on the sidelines and getting them out to vote. So there's a lot of margin for improvement there to get the new voter out. And that I think that's where Nikki's team has really been hitting the ground and having some success. The polls don't always show that those types of numbers. I mean, the polls right in, in New Hampshire had Nikki down by 20, you know, the day before uh, the, the primary. And she, you know, closed it to about 10. Points. So uh, you can't just look at the polls. It's really this is all decided at the, the voter the voter box. And again, two, three states do not dictate the, uh, the nominee for president for everybody else to say that, well, we're just going to look at a few hundred thousand folks and they're going to tell us who our nominee should be for the entire party, for the entire country. No, that's that that's not the way it should work. You got to take this at least through Super Tuesday uh, and start kind of showing, you know, with Trump's most recent comments uh, overseas on Putin, that is undoubtedly going to hurt him. Um, those are un-American comments. They really are. Uh, you, uh, the fact that she's raising money and spending money on a campaign He's spending all of his money right now, uh, at least 50 to 60 million on his legal on his legal fees. So where are the resources going to come from? The RNC itself has a record low amount of cash on hand because of his leadership and his type of message. You need everybody to get in here. If you don't get those suburban mom ba moms back, you don't get some of those young voters back. You cannot win in November. And that's what this is about. Let me ask you, though, do you think all of those legal cases are legit, nonpartisan, apolitical cases against him? No, I don't. But that doesn't matter. He's still going to have to spend 50 to 100 million dollars defending himself. That's that's kind of the point that whether it's legitimate or not doesn't matter. He's got this chaos that surrounds him. It, it absolutely does. And would keep, will keep surrounding him if he were to become president. Right. So nothing is going to ultimately get done. So whether you buy off on them or not really doesn't matter. The fact is they are his chaos and he's got to handle it. OK, so let me ask you this. New York Times piece said uh, Saturday that all of the punches that Governor Haley is landing on President Trump are actually helping President Biden in the general election, saying, um, quoting Tyler Jones, a Democratic strategist in South Carolina, said, Ms. Haley has been aiding the Biden campaign by making, quote, the most effective attacks on Donald Trump, but in Republican spaces. So if, listen, statistically, there's almost zero chance she can pull off the nomination. Why continue to do things that are going to help President Biden in the general First, there's not a zero, zero chance that she's going to win the nomination. That's nonsense in itself. This is a primary. Everything always gets chippy. If you go back to 2016, everyone had their shots at Trump and all that, and it played out. And there's the same context. Well, you can't attack the front runner because the Democrats might use it. This is about getting the nomination at this point uh, and battling it out and calling the candidates for what they are and giving, letting folks know that when they vote for someone, who are they actually voting for? What, what are they actually saying? What's the rhetoric there? Where are these policies going to go? Uh, 
Uh, that is all absolutely fair game and should be on the table for folks to make their choice. And to say that we're just going to do two or three states and call it a day, that, that's crazy. That's a bunch of, of Trump sycophants just praying that, the, that the, the former president gets a free ride. He hasn't earned a free ride. He doesn't deserve a free ride. Uh, the Republican Party deserves options and choices and a next generational leadership that has a lot of those same policy ideas, but actually could not just win in November, but implement those policy ideas, mm -hmm. right? Like being fiscally conservative, which Trump wasn't, building the wall, which Trump didn't, putting in the right policies uh, to drain the swamp and get rid of bureaucracy. Trump did none of that, right? So we want a Republican that doesn't just talk the talk, but can deliver those results for America. Well, Governor, we will see what happens in South Carolina. Thank you for stopping in. Good to see you. You bet. Thank you. All right, Fox News Channel is hosting two town halls ahead of that primary. The first airs today, 5 p.m. Eastern. Nikki Haley sits down with America Reports co-anchor John Roberts in the state's capital later this week. Former President Donald Trump sits down with Laura Ingram in Spartanburg, South Carolina, 7 p.m. Tuesday, the 20th, on the Ingram Angle on the Fox News Channel. Up next, former President Trump slapped with a massive fine in New York, nearly half a billion dollars. And then sparks fly in a Georgia courtroom with the DA behind Trump's criminal trial there takes the stand. No, 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 no. This is the truth, Judge. And this, it, it, it is a lie. It is a lie. Sail through the... The art of the deal. But he perfected the art of the steal. She's a horribly corrupt attorney general, and it's all having to do with election interference. That was New York Attorney General Letitia James and former President Trump on Friday, both speaking after Judge Arthur Ngoron handed down his ruling in the civil fraud case against Trump, barring the former president from operating his business in New York for three years and finding him liable for more than $350 million in damages. At the interest, nears a half billion dollars. The bombshell coming after a months-long trial stemming from James' lawsuit, alleging Trump inflated his assets and committed fraud. Our legal panel joins us to discuss that and more. Former Principal Deputy Assistant Attorney General Tom Dupree and Fox News contributor and George Washington University law professor Jonathan Turley. Great to have you guys back. Thank you. We have, so I, we'll try to get to as much as we can, but let's start with that case. Um, the judge in this ruling with these massive fines um, said this about the defendants, their complete lack of contrition and remorse borders on pathological. I mean, Jonathan, he really went after them. In he, this he did, and the opinion comes off a little too cathartic for the judge. I mean, the judge really lashes out at Trump, and you really see that in the ultimate conclusion. He just imposed damages the equal of the GNP of Micronesia, I mean, and various other countries. And the question is, what's the basis for that? You just imposed $350 million or more in damages plus another $100 million that's going to come from interest in a case where there was zero dollars lost by the banks, where the banks said they wanted to do more business mm -hmm. with the guy you just barred from doing business with them. And the question of the excessiveness of that fine does raise a serious appellate issue, not just for the New York Court of Appeals, but also potentially for the Supreme Court. Well, and Tom, that all these questions on appeal there, too, because there are people asking questions about the banks. Okay, if there weren't quote-unquote victims, there's nobody who came forward and said, I lost all this money and I am um, in the hole because of this guy. Why are banks and other institutions who, they're warned, do your own due diligence, do your own appraisals and estimates, 
Why are they not caught up in this law? Yeah, well, that's a great point. And look, the fact is, is these were not unsophisticated business actors. I mean, these banks are among the most sophisticated business entities we have in the United States. And they themselves do their own due diligence to look at the materials that borrowers are submitting to them and that sort of thing. What makes this case unusual, Shannon, is number one, New York's law didn't require the attorney general really to prove that there was a victim. So in fairness, she didn't need to prove that. But here's the thing. I'm not aware of other cases where you have a prosecutor choosing to bring charges and claims of this nature when you don't have a bank or someone coming and saying I was victimized. This statute has been on the books for a long time, but I can't think of many other prosecutions that are similar to what happened here. All right, let's turn to the other big state case. This is Georgia. Um, the DA down there, Fonnie Willis, was on the witness stand this week over questions of potential ethic, ethical lapses, at least the allegations of such. Here's a little bit of her on the stand. And it's highly offensive when they try Judge. to implicate that you slept with somebody the first day you met with them. Thank Those you. merchants' entrance are, per are contrary to democracy, Your Honor, not to mine. So let's be clear, because you've lied in this, this. Let me tell you which one you lied in. Right here. I think you lied right here. No, 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 no. This is the truth. Judge, and this, it, it, it is a lie. It is a lie. You think I'm on trial. These people are on trial for trying to steal an election in 2020. I'm not on trial, no matter how hard you try to put me on trial. Don't be cute with me and then think that you're not going to get an answer. Tom, I'm trying to think of another case where I've seen a prosecutor <laughs> on the stand and, and I have to do this. This whole situation is so unusual. I, I just can't believe what, what we saw the other day. I mean, look, here's the thing. Uh, Fonnie Willis made a calamitous misjudgment when she decided to put Mr. Wade in charge of this prosecution and bring him aboard. There's no question even liberals and Trump opponents acknowledge that this was a terrible error. And the question to my mind is, why hasn't she just stepped aside at this point? Prosecutors are judged not necessarily by having impropriety, but by the appearance of impropriety. And what we've seen here and all the details that came out during this hearing, these kind of sordid personal details about when their relationship started, when it ended. I mean, the question is, can she continue to serve in this role, given everything that's been raised? And if she wanted this prosecution to move along, you would think at some point someone might pull her aside and say, look, Fani, step aside, let a new team come in and take this case over. Well, both she and Mr. Wade say there was no relationship prior to this working relationship starting and that, you know, there was no share. There were cash repayments by her to him for what he spent. Do you think the judge has seen enough or would take the step to say, if there's smoke, there's fire? Well, one thing is clear is that no one will ever say election law is boring again. Not after this uh, case. Yes. Uh, but the astonishing thing about this is that you have two prosecutors who stand accused of filing false statements in court. Uh, Mr. Wade is accused of answering interrogatories falsely. Uh, and Willis is accused of making false statements in her own filings. That's what they're prosecuting defendants in the case mm -hmm. for. So building on what Tom said, at some point you have to recognize that your personal interests have to give way to the interests of the case and the office. They haven't done that. Has the judge heard enough? Uh, yes, but he's still in the tough position. Disqualification mm -hmm. is a heavy lift. Mm -hmm. The issue of the appearance of impropriety may give him a basis for saying you need to step aside. My question is, will he refer these two to the bar? Their allegations of false statements being filed, their testimony did not help in that respect. And so will this judge say, look, I'm going to suggest that one or both of you remove yourselves or maybe even order it. But I am also going to ask the bar to look into these allegations. Okay, real quickly before we go, um, the Supreme Court is now sitting on this request for a stay from the president, essentially, President Trump, essentially he wants to be able to litigate this issue of immunity. That slows down the Jack Smith trial against him. Does the Supreme Court get involved or do they say we leave it alone for now? 
Well, I think that it's a good chance that the court is going to just let this stay where it is. They've already done a lot of lifting on the election. They want, may want this cup to pass from their <laughs> yeah. lips. Uh, but I have to say Trump has one, I think, very good argument. Um, I think the justices are, are not going to be that persuaded on immunity. But I think that the idea of extinguishing the right to go for an in-bank or inter an intermediate appeal does rub a lot of us the wrong way. That is what most litigants are allowed. Quick final word. I agree with Jonathan. Look, I think the Supreme Court may be experiencing a bit of Trump litigation fatigue at this point, and they often will say if they've got a complex issue coming down the road, hey, if we defer this, maybe it'll go away. So this court may say, let's let a trial play out. If, in fact, there's a conviction, we can always address the immunity question on the back end. All right, gentlemen, it'll be another busy week. Thank right. you both very much. Thank you. Thanks, Jenna. Okay, we're going to take a deeper dive into brand new Fox News polls out of two key swing states with our panel next. I know this might seem out of the blue. President, the worst we've ever had. The happiest man in our country today is a man named Jimmy Carter because he is considered a brilliant president by comparison. The position of the MAGA Republicans can be characterized by the New York Times headline. It reads, Trump first, Putin second, America third. Well, President Trump and uh, President Biden trading shots, as polling indicates, they're likely on a collision course for a rematch of 2020. Let's talk about it with our Sunday group, Josh Krashauer, editor-in-chief of Jewish Insider. Katie Pavlich, townhall.com editor, Forbes contributing writer Richard Fowler, and Daniel Lippman, Politico White House and Washington reporter. Welcome to all of you. I want to get uh, to some Fox News polling, brand new out of a couple of key swing states. North Carolina, you can see there Trump has a five-point advantage on Biden. And in Michigan, tighter, but it's a two-point uh, advantage. Daniel, how is the White House feeling about these polls these days? They're not feeling great. And they recognize the big problems in Michigan. And so they sent the campaign manager, Julie Chavez Rodriguez, to try to meet with Arab American political leaders there. She was rejected from some of those meetings, so they sent they had to send the national security officials like John Finer, who told them, "Hey, we regret some of what we did in uh, Gaza." And so they're looking at those polls and feeling pretty nervous. Well, and when you uh, in these same Fox News polls, when you add a third party, a couple big names like JFK Jr. and others in North Carolina, the Trump lead winds to nine points in Michigan. Trump leads to five points. But the good news for the White House this week is that it looks like Joe Manchin's not running. We're not going to have Joe Manchin as a third-party candidate, but there are going to be a lot of other third-party candidates mostly challenging Joe Biden from his left. So, look, you look at those numbers, Shannon, Joe Biden has a center problem. There are a lot of independent voters, swing voters that back Joe Biden in 2020 that are now supporting Donald Trump. He also, he also has a base problem. Uh, it, it's shocking to see over 20 percent of African-Americans, both in North Carolina and Michigan, supporting Donald Trump. Uh, in, in the polling. He only got single digits in, in the 2020 election. That's a three times, uh, over three times more support among non-white voters. So it's a big red flag among the base. I mean, Biden, you know, you heard Daniel talking about uh, Arab voters in Michigan, but it's also younger voters. It's African-American voters. You're going to hear a lot more outreach from, from, from Biden to the base. Yeah. And Richard, you have a piece out on this this week. Um, how should the Biden campaign be managing these concerns? Well, I think there, there is a real concern around, around black voters, right? I, I take these polls as a grain of salt because the only poll that really matters is how people vote on Election Day. And if you look at black voters specifically, especially black men, and you zero in on the last election, so this last election we had in 2023 in Ohio, what we saw was this. When it comes to protecting a woman's right to choose, the demographic that voted in the highest percentage for that 
was black men. So what the White House has to do in this moment is really go out and have a conversation with these voters because ultimately they will be the deciders in places like Michigan because of Detroit, in places like North Carolina because of places like Charlotte and Raleigh-Durham. But it's going to require this White House have a real conversation with them given the fact that while this president has a low approval rating, the economy that he's created, this economic environment that's created is working in the right direction. Inflation outside of this month's numbers are down. Unemployment's at a record low. All these things are working in the president's favor. He now has to figure out a way to get credit for it from the American voter. Well, our polls show, again, in these key states of North Carolina and Michigan, that people do not feel like the economy is going well for them. Um, the vast majority say they're either holding steady or falling behind. In both Michigan and North Carolina, the largest group responding said, Katie, they are falling behind. And this also comes in a week where Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is saying people are doing better than they think they are. Look, the, eco the economic numbers are not working in President Joe Biden's favor. They've repeatedly for months tried to sell Bidenomics. It is not working. Inflation has not gone down. Things are just going up in price at a slower pace. You also see those numbers going up this month on things that people need, like food and housing and basic essentials like energy that everybody is using. That's a big problem for the White House and for President Biden. And if you look at the polling across the board, President Trump constantly beats Biden on the number one issues for voters, and that's immigration and the economy. The other issue that the White House is having a huge problem with, and we're in week two of this now, is the mental capacity issue that Joe Biden is facing. Uh, you have a number of, of Democrats uh, having huge concerns about this issue. President Trump also beats Joe Biden on that topic of mental acuity, mental capability, and uh, serving in the White House as a commander-in-chief to make big decisions by 20 points. Well, and it, it feels like we would have maybe been done talking about the Her report to some extent, but the White House brought it up again. Ian Sams over at the White House sent a letter to the White House Correspondents Association saying, I'm compelled to urge caution in the future with reporting that is either inattentive to detail or misconstrues the facts and evidence. They weren't happy about the Her reporting, but that memo seems to have reignited a conversation about it. Yeah, no reporter wants to be told how to do their job. Uh, and so clearly they recognize that age is a huge issue. Uh, the White House officials I talked to. Uh, and they also, uh, there was kind of, we should remind ourselves about how Biden was supposed to be a transitional candidate mm -hmm. uh, in 2020. He kind of hinted he would only serve one term. Uh, and of course, Kamala Harris uh, wasn't able to become the great political star that they hoped to take the mantle. And so that has really dogged the White House in terms of uh, having uh, Biden still in, in that role. And, and Josh, the press corps uh, reigniting this conversation, um, Kelly O'Donnell, from, who's the White House um, Correspondent Association president, pushed back and basically said, we're not going to police journalism or decide the government, you know, to adhere to their view of what we're doing. Yeah, I mean, the White House, their spin is that age is not an issue. Just look at Joe Biden and see what he does. And people are looking at Joe Biden and they're worried about his age. I mean, 85 percent, as Katie pointed out, of, of Americans in the AP or in the Ipsos poll said that they were concerned about Joe Biden's age. That, that's Republicans, independents and Democrats. It's a major concern for the reelection. Not a word, Katie? Well, and, you know, the White House staff is desperately trying to spin that the special counsel report was inappropriate. They shouldn't have said certain things about the president's memory. But when they put him, him out there to prove that he is capable, he makes some really big mistakes in in speeches specifically to push back on the report or back on Republicans criticizing his Five seconds. potential. Listen, I think the undercard here is Kamala Harris. While this is happening, we know the vice president's having meetings with various African-American leaders, with various political strategists, trying to figure out how the White House breaks out this bubble. And I think that's going to be important to watch. All right. Thank you, panel. Great to see all of you. We'll see you next Sunday. Up next, Fox News foreign correspondent Trey Yingst is live in Israel with an update on the status of that expected Israeli ground offensive in southern Gaza. He's live next.
I brought in Ensure Max Protein with the cabinet voting unanimously to approve a resolution today rejecting any unilateral recognition of a Palestinian state without direct negotiations with Israel. As the IDF continues to prepare for an expected major ground offensive in southern Gaza, joining us now live from Tel Aviv, Fox News foreign correspondent Trey Yangsillo. Trey. Shannon, good morning. It is day 135 of the war between Israel and Hamas, and with no concrete solutions on the horizon to end the conflict, tension remains high across the Middle East. In northern Gaza, children hold signs and chant, we want flour. Hundreds protesting the lack of aid delivered to this part of the Strip. Over the weekend, Hamas threatening to suspend all negotiations for a ceasefire deal until food and medicine reaches these vulnerable people. It comes as Israeli operations across Gaza continue ahead of a looming ground offensive into the southernmost city of Rafah, where more than one million Palestinians are sheltering. With the conflict raging on, observers worry that attacks from Iran-backed groups across the region will continue until an agreement is reached between Israel and Hamas. The Lebanese militant group Hezbollah still launching rockets into northern Israel, gradually drawing heavier responses and threatening a full-scale war with the Jewish state. And in Yemen, Iran-backed Houthi rebels have maintained attacks against Red Sea shipping lanes, causing the United States to launch four new strikes last week, hitting missiles that were being prepared for launch. Diplomatic efforts are unfolding with oversight from the United States, but with each passing day, the possibility of a broader regional conflict increases. Shannon? Trey Yangst in Tel Aviv for us. Trey, thank you very much. That is it for today. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Shannon Bream. Have a great week. We'll see you next Fox News Sunday. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to Fox News Sunday ad-free on Amazon Music with your Prime membership or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.